I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. morning. How is everybody doing today? Glad to see your smiling faces. Okay, I, I'm in a little bit of a bind because I want to teach what we've been doing and I also want to speak about Purim a little bit. I don't think we're going to have time for both. But as you all know, tonight is Rosh Chodesh Adar and it's the second Adar. So maybe I'll start with just a few quick ideas. I won't go into them too much. But the question that is asked is, why is it that we celebrate Purim in the second Adar? And the reason that it's even a question is because we have this principle in Judaism that, you know, we try to be zrizim, meaning we try to do things right away. So it would make sense that we would have Purim in the first Adar because, you know, zrizim makdinim mitzvah, that uh, there's a concept again of alacrity and doing a mitzvah. But the reason that it's pushed off to the second Adar is because we want to put one Geula close to the next Geula. So Purim was a redemptive story for us. The Jewish people were going to be annihilated, exterminated. And of course, not only did we survive physically, but spiritually, we came back in full force to the Torah and the reacceptance of the Torah. The words used at the end of the Megillah are Kimu Vikiblu, that the Jewish people embraced and reaccepted the Torah with love. There's an opinion that the first time we got the Torah on Har Sinai, it was out of fear. We were, in a sense, coerced. Um, the mountain, Mount Sinai, we're told, was literally picked up and held over our heads. There's a medrash that talks about that and says that God says to us, either you accept my Torah here or you can consider this your burial place. So that sounds like coercion to me. <laughs> but uh, anyway, the idea of, of, um, of Purim is that we came to a reacceptance and acknowledgement and understanding that without the Torah, we are doomed. And that, that our mission in this world is as Jews to, of course, keep the Torah, do the mitzvot and bring the world to its mission, because uh, that's the whole purpose of the world. So that's why Purim is close to Pesach, which of course, Pesach is also the holiday of Geula, of redemption. So we do it in the second Adar to, to connect one Geula to the next. Just quickly, there's four parshiot that we read as we're coming up to Pesach in this time period between, or actually beginning before Purim. Um, last week, we read a special parsha called Parsha Shkalim. It's always read on the Shabbat on or before Rosh Chodesh Adar. Okay, so it was read last Shabbos. And of course, this is the Parsha, or actually, we read the regular Parsha, by the way, on these four special uh, Shabbases, but we take out a piece of the Torah that we read specially on those uh, days. 
So what we read from on last Shabbos, we read from Parshas Kisisa, which talks about how the Jews were told to give a half shekel instead of counting the Jews, taking a census, because you're not allowed to count people, right? People can't be reduced to a number, which was one of the uh, Nazis' way of you know, diminishing the humanity of the Jew was by giving him a number. We have a mitzvah not to number people, not to uh, count people, not to make them into a number. And so they were given, supposed to be giving a half shekel. And of course, the idea of every Jew giving a half shekel, rich, both rich or poor, giving exactly the same amount was teaching the lesson that, you know, every single Jew is important, that nobody is indispensable, that Hashem sees every Jew as equal in terms of their potential. And, you know, this was an equalizing thing where everybody equally gave the same amount and realized also that they're only a half person. We're not, we can't as Jews be completely whole unless we're part of a com community and unless we're being contributive together with the rest of Kal Yisrael, the rest of the Jewish people. But interestingly, in terms of how it connects to hump to um, the Purim Megillah. So it says that basically in the Gemara, when ha Haman comes to Achashverosh, he bring he, you know, they exchange a certain amount of money. Hold on one second, let me read it to you. It says, why was Haman willing to give 10,000 kikar of silver to destroy the Jews? Haman says the entire merit of the Jews is the fact that they each donated a half shekel towards the support of the Mishkan. I'm going to give an amount equivalent to all of the half shekels that the 600,000 Jews donated throughout their lives. The obligation, okay. So he said, let my, so the amount that they had all given in those 50 years came to exactly 10,000 kikar of silver. So, um, so then it says, let my shekels come and annul the power of theirs. So basically what the Gemara says is too bad, Haman, even though you were willing to pay all this money, the Jews beat you to it. In other words, the Jews, you know, years and years before you ever came on the scene had already given this money to the Mishkan. And so whatever you tried to do in terms of giving that same amount to beat us, had no effect on us because we'd already done this incredible mitzvah. We were united in this mitzvah. And of course, when the Jews are united, also the idea is that we are invincible. But it says that the money we gave canceled out the money that uh, Haman gave in terms of our destruction. Okay, and then this week's part, this week's portion, we don't read anything special. Okay, but next week on the Shabbos before Purim, we're going to read Parsha Zachor. The Parsha Zachor is found in the um, in the Parsha of Kisavo in Devarim, Kitavo. And it's actually a mitzvah. It's one of the 613 mitzvahs. It's the only Torah reading. If you don't go to Shul all year and you don't listen to the Parsha the entire year, you've done nothing wrong. But if you miss hearing Parsha's Amalek, okay, it's the only Torah reading that you are actually obligated to read and listen to. So people make a special effort to get to shul to hear this. You know, in many shuls, they'll read it twice. They'll read it at the end of davening, 
for the mothers that couldn't get there because they had young children, right? Or they take turns with each other or whatever. And, you know, they'll read it in, in, the, in, the, in the reading of the, uh, when they read the Parsha, they'll read it there as the Haftorah. But it's, it's a, a, an obligation on women, anybody over bar mitzvah, bar mitzvah age and over. And of course, it's all about eradicating Amalek. And of course, Amalek, who was a real people, a real nation in the Torah, the ones that chased us out, chased behind us as we were leaving Egypt and attacked us from behind, right? Amalek it, what, was, was a people, but today we think of Amalek more as an ideology. But Haman himself was descended from Amalek, which is why we read this, parsh, this, this piece of the Torah at this time. And basically, just so for those of you who've never heard it or you need a reminder, it's a, it's a mitzvah to remember what Amalek did to you on the way when you were leaving Egypt, that he happened upon you on the way and struck those of you who were hindmost, all the weaklings at your rear. He struck the women, the old women and the children who were, you know, slower at the back. And he, and, and when you were faint and exhausted and he did not fear God, it shall be that when Hashem, your God gives you rest from all your enemies all around in the land that Hashem, your God gives you as an inheritance to possess it, you shall wipe out the memory of Amalek from under the heaven. You shall not forget. And of course, we could have many, many Shirim talking about the meaning of the word Amalek, what Amalek represents in the world. But basically, if the Jewish people are called first in terms of being the nation that has uh, the most ability to spread goodness and kindness and the word of God in the world, Amalek is the complete opposite. He's also called first, but he's first in terms of evil, the desire to eradicate God consciousness in the world, which is something that Hitler Yamach Shemo was a great representative of Amalek. I just listened to a podcast, very interesting, if you're interested, by a Rabbi uh, Lapin, Daniel Lapin, um, all about why it's impossible to understand anti-Semitism or Hitler's war on the Jews without a spiritual lens. And that's why it's baffled academics um, up until this day to try and understand Hitler's obsession with the Jews at the cost of losing the war, which is what happened. If he hadn't been so obsessed with getting rid of every single Jew, he probably would have been much more successful in taking over the world. But that, and, and, and anyway, he says that you cannot understand it at all unless you understand that what Hitler understood, which is this is a war between me and God. And the Jewish people who are the representatives of God consciousness and morality in the world, which he wanted to eradicate. Survival of the fittest was something he believed in. You get rid of the weak in society if you want to be a strong Aryan nation. And of course, this goes completely against Torah and the Jewish sense of morality and, and love and, and help for the weak and the oppressed in the world is our philosophy. Okay, so we read that Parsha, the mitzvah to, uh, and then another Parsha that we read right after Parsha Zachor, getting ready for Pesach now. We've, we've celebrated Forum, and now we're getting ready for Pesach, and we read Pesach, and we read a piece of the Torah again called the Para Aduma, all about the Para Aduma.
I know this is a bit more of a technical class. For those of you who like the more Musser character development, we're going to get to that too. But I want to educate you guys also just on the very, uh, you know, practicals of, of what's coming up. So the para aduma basically was this hope, this law, that if you were impure, and of course, in the times of the temple, this, this uh, was uh, relevant, um, you know, if you had, and, and how did a Jew become impure, both men or women? You became impure by having any contact with a dead body. So anything that has a taste of death, that, that is contact with death, in Judaism, that's considered a... Uh, something that makes you spiritually impure because we know we're the religion of life, right? L'chaim. Life uh, is, uh, you know, is the desired state and death makes somebody spiritually impure. You can no longer do mitzvahs, etc. So you had to purify yourself in order to be able to bring korbanos, to bring sacrifices. And specifically before Pesach, everybody had to bring the korban Pesach, right? Everybody knows everybody... Uh, sat around and had a barbecue with the sheep, with the the god of the Egyptians, right? The smell of their god was wafting through the air of Egypt, right? The Jews were all sitting around. It was a very uh, big mitzvah, and there was all kinds of laws about how you eat it, uh, you know, which parts, whatever. The, a lot of technical details, all very symbolic. But the point was, is if the Jews were going to be able to do this mitzvah of Korban Pesach, they had to be purified and make so. Um, so basically, they had to do this um, ritual where basically ashes were sprinkled on their head, and uh, it was uh, you know a calf that was uh, uh, burnt up, and the ashes were mixed with other materials, and now they would be able to bring the korban pesach. Okay, the very last thing that we read just before pesach is called Parshas Achodesh. We read it on or before Rosh Chodesh Nisan. And this is the Torah reading of God giving us the mitzvah of Rosh Chodesh. And it's the very first mitzvah where we are give, that we are given as a people, as a nation. Okay? After we receive the Torah. And basically that mitzvah is telling us, teaching us about the sanctification of time. Right, that we are, we can create our that first of all our calendar is based on the moon. This month shall be for you. Hold on, let me just find it here. Um, it's found in Parshas Bo, the book of Shemos, um, the second Parsha there, and on. Sorry, the third parsha. And it says, I thought I put something in here, but I didn't. Oh no, where is it? Yeah. Hashem says to Moshe and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of the months. It should be for you the first of the months of the year. Okay. So it's talking about the idea that you have to make a calendar and you will be sanctifying time by, um, according to the moon, by determining when the holidays will be throughout the year. 
And of course, this had a lot of symbolism. Number one, the fact that the Jews are compared to the moon, right? We have this ability to renew ourselves. Just when it looks like the moon is about to disappear, it comes back. And so too, the Jewish people, just like we look, just when we look like we're going to disappear, we come back stronger than ever. And we cannot be gotten rid of. And also the idea that the moon's light comes at, from the reflection of the sun. So the Jewish people are compared to the moon and God is compared to the sun. And we're supposed to be a reflection of God in this world, right? The chosen people means, non, number one, that we were the choosing people. We chose God. As I, can, I think it was Samuel Taylor Coleridge or some famous writer that wrote, how odd of God to choose the Jews. It's not that odd. The Jews chose God. So the idea, again, is that because we did make this pact with God, we illuminate God in the world. We either allow the moon to be brightened by the sun or we stay in darkness, so to speak, when we turn away from God, from our mission, from that which we were created to do, which was to bring the illumination and morality and everything that God represents in this world and create heaven on earth, right? Um, there is one more Shabbos that's called Shabbos Hagadol. It's not considered one of the special parshiot. It's the Shabbos, um, always the Shabbos right before Pesach. And it basically commemorates the, 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 the uh, experience of the Jewish people taking the God of Egypt, the Korban Pesach, and um, basically saying we don't believe in this God anymore and we're ready to leave Egypt with the one and only true God on our way to Mount Sinai. And we're going to exchange the gods that we perhaps were serving before when we were slaves in Egypt. We're simply going to be switching masters from Paro and all of the different idols and immoralities and all kinds of terrible things that the Egyptians practiced and believed in. We're just switching that for the one true God. Okay, so that's just a little bit about, about what's coming up. And also just to wish you all a Chodesh Sameach, Chodesh Tov, right? Rosh Chodesh also stands for Rosh Chadash. It's a ability to renew ourselves. It's a special gift to women. Women were given the mitzvah of Rosh Chodesh um, to make it even more special because of the fact that we did not participate in the sin of the golden calf and the cheta ego. We, we refused to give our jewelry. Some I, I heard a beautiful thing on that, that somebody said, yeah, well, what women would want to give up their jewelry for anything, right? But only a few parshas later, we were eagerly giving up our jewelry for the creation of the Mishkan. So the truth is, is women understood what was a good purpose and what was a negative purpose. And so we were rewarded with that vision and that steadfastness and that commitment to not panic and not give in to this idea of, you know, God isn't with us and we need a new God. And again, we have this idea that it's been uh, because of Nashim Sidkanios, because of the righteous women, that we even got out of Egypt. 
many reasons, you know, the righteous women, Shifra and Pua, Miri and Batya, so many personalities in the Pesach story, and that it, this will be true in the future, which God willing is coming soon, that it's going to be in the merit of righteous women, that we are, we will be welcoming Mashiach and the future redemption, because women throughout uh, history and through many of the stories in the Torah are always the ones that when the men, so to speak, were willing, were ready to give up and say, it's, it's, it's all over. There's no point. There's no use. We're finished. It was always the women that said, uh-uh, no way. We've got to hold on. It's going to happen. And that's the way it is today too. And that's what we, that's what we believe. There must be some very righteous women out there that are going to bring the Geula. And maybe it's, maybe it's all of you out there on the screen. So keep it up, ladies. Maybe it's our Torah learning that's bringing it closer and closer. Okay, so let's go back to our original topic for the next half hour. And we've been talking about Taiva. We've been talking about the, um, well, first of all, you know, uh, we have a mitzvah in this month to be happy. So I just to introduce this and connect it, when a person is the master over themselves, when, the, when a person isn't at the whim of his impulses or cravings or addictions, whatever they might be, obviously it takes a lot of work and it's difficult, but certainly our joy and happiness is increased when we are proud of ourselves, when we feel we've overcome something even once, even a little bit makes a difference. We stand up a little straighter and we feel a little bit more uh, happy about being in control. And that's what we've been talking about. So, you know, last week we were talking about um, basically how difficult it is to control oneself in this day and age. And we were talking specifically about the news we were talking about the fact that we live in a very technologically oriented society where, you know, online shopping and playing with our phones and being on the phones, especially for young people who are growing up like this is normal, right? You know, creates all kinds of dopamine that happens in the brain and gives us all kinds of, you know, highs and feelings of power and constantly being in touch with people and importance. But, you know, we have to be careful that we don't become addicted and that we're masters and we're using it properly and that social media isn't controlling us, but we're using it in a responsible way. And it's very, very difficult. Um, you know, pornography addiction is much more available. It always was, but it was always available, but now that it's combined with technology, it's obviously even more available and prevalent and kids can find it and it's, it's just easier, right? We have, even in the religious world today, kids who are not keeping Shabbos properly, they call themselves half Shabbos because they can't disconnect during that day. They might go to shul, they might do everything else but they can't stop themselves from texting on the Shabbos because they become so addicted to it. I know it's unbelievable. So, you know, we're talking about the idea that 
Judaism is a religion of moderation. It definitely moderation is a Jewish value. And we were saying in terms of each one of us, we have to know in which areas of our life moderation works or where something has to be completely off limits. You know, if you're a sugaraholic, right? So can you keep a little bar of chocolate in the house that you're only going to eat at night after you've been good all day? Or do you have to get rid of it completely, right? Now, some people can do that. Some people can diet and give themselves a little piece of 90% chocolate that tastes like cardboard at the end of the day and convince themselves that it tastes good. You know, I was eating these keto chocolates and my, I gave my sister one, you know, to take, she goes, I don't know, like, how do you eat these? I was wondering how you eat this. This is like horrible. Anyway, I guess if you're you know, not eating any sugar all day long or whatever, it starts to taste good. We said our taste buds can change, you know, if we, and they do, you know, if you eat less sugar, all of a sudden everything that's, it's got too much sugar, right, for you. So, but the point is, is are you one of those people that, that can eat that chocolate at the end of the day? Or, you know, if you're going to eat that chocolate, the next thing you know, anything that's chocolate in your house is going to be devoured. The cake, going to be pulling ice creams out of the freezer. You're going to just be, right? So you have to know, how do you do with moderation? Or do you need things to be completely off limits? Okay, so this actually is, is discussed by the rabbis. And one of the places that we know of this, and it's a very famous expression, in the, in the world at large, it comes from Mishle, Proverbs, Mishle Tess, Pasuk Yud Zion, and there it says, stolen waters are sweet, and hidden bread, you probably never heard the last part of it, it says, and hidden bread is pleasant, but we're going to focus on the first word, stolen waters are sweet, Mayan Ganuvi, Metukim, okay, so what it's telling us here is there's something inherent in the human psyche that when we're told we can't have something, all of a sudden it becomes sweeter. It becomes more interesting. It piques our curiosity, right? The idea of forbidden fruits. So the question that we have to ask and that the rabbis asked is why make things off limits? if it's going to make the desire stronger. So it's interesting that this is not an, a Jewish idea to make things off limits, though many people think of Judaism as a very restrictive religion. Oh, no, I don't want to become religious. I won't be able to do anything. But think about it. You know, there are things on Shabbos that we're not allowed to do but basically, you can do those things on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Just on Shabbos, you can't do it. So, you know, there's all these days that you can do it. You can't have milk after meat, but it's not forever, right? You don't have to never have milk again. It's not for a week. It's not for a month. It's for a few hours, right? Only for a limited time. We know that chazir is forbidden. And yet the Torah teaches us that there's a certain fish that tastes like chazir. And it says, if you want to taste chazir, go eat this fish. And it, it'll be the closest thing to chazir that you could taste. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know which one it is. And if, they, you know, if, if it's out there, they're probably marketing it like crazy in Borough Park and Flatbush for sure. 
and you know it's going to be on the Pesach menu this year okay but but yeah there's always they say for everything that's forbidden there's some permitted some permitted taste permitted something that we could <clears throat> here's an interesting one in the Gemara it says that you can't marry another man's wife obviously right you can't marry another man's wife but if a woman divorces her husband and you marry her, you're marrying a woman whose husband is still alive, right? So what's the difference? So basically, they, Dina Schoomaker uses this as an example of the fact that in Judaism, we have a lot of rules, but we also believe in pleasure. You know, my best friend growing up, for those of you who read my H article or whatever, she was a Baptist. They completely abstain. No drink, no alcohol, no kiddish, right? They abstain from everything. No makeup, no, okay, they're not Muslims and they're covering their faces, but their ideology is if you indulge in pleasures, you will become a slave to them. As whereas Judaism, uh, you know, proposes and 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 recognizes that the true master is somebody who knows how to indulge in pleasures, but is able to practice moderation. Right, that's the holy person. Okay, somebody who's able to do that. So. We believe that we should enjoy the pleasures and aesthetics of life, even though we have certain things that are not allowed. Ideologically, we don't like to create mayim ganuvim, meaning stolen waters. We don't like to create in people that feeling of, if you tell me I can't have it, then I'm going to want it. So the question asked is, why create boundaries or limits at all? <clears throat> So Dina Schoonmaker gives an example in Israel, in the more right-wing Haredi community, there's a whole question, you know, should you let your kids read Harry Potter? You know, is that good for the Jew or bad for the Jew? So she says it happened in a school in Eretz Yisrael that, of course, the school policy was no, kids should not be rereading Harry Potter in this school. And she said, of course, once they made this rule not to read it, every kid was very excited to want to read it. So again, sometimes when you make a rule uh, that, you know, people either question or they don't understand or they want to understand it and the, 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 um, the answer doesn't make sense to them, or even just the rule itself is going to make, like we said at the beginning, them more interested in wanting to read it. So Homer is um, that we all have a certain nature to want what we can't have. And yet everybody's homer is different. Again, there are people who, if you give them a rule, they follow the rule, right? They like rules, you know? They've got yekish blood in them or whatever it is, right? They like rules. They want rules. If the school said no, if my mother said no, 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 we're not doing that. We're not touching that. We're not going there. No, we have to be home at 1130. That's what my mother said, right? And then you have other kids with more rebellious natures where that could be the worst thing. As soon as you tell them no, they want it even more. So this is a homer. This is something that we're born with. We're born either to be, you know, more goody two-shoesy 
right? Or to say, if you tell me I can't have it, then I want it. Which again, all human beings have a little bit of this, but some people less and some people more. So it's called the koach hamarida, the rebellious koach. If you tell me not to do it, I will want to do it. And way back at the very beginning of the Chumash, right? In Bereshis, when it talks about Adam and Chava in the garden, it says about Chava, you know, she saw the tree, the tree that God tells them not to eat from. And it was a delight to her eyes. So the Yetzer Hara is triggered by the eyes seeing, right? It says the eyes see and then the heart desires. And the first place in the Torah that the word Taiva shows up is right there. That she saw the tree and she desired it. I'd like to find the pasuk if I could find it quickly. Um, one sec. When the woman perceived that the tree was good for eating, it's in Gimel, the beginning of Bereshis. Um, and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable as a means to wisdom. So here you see she even had a spiritual tithe. If I eat from this tree, I'll be smarter. I'll be wiser. I'll understand the world even better. Right? She had everything materially. She didn't need anything materially. She was in the Garden of Eden. But to eat from this tree, she could know or be like God or be God himself, so to speak, which was one of the ploys of the Satan to say, oh, well, you know, God doesn't want you to eat from this tree because then you'll be God. You'll know as much as he knows. And he doesn't want any competitors. But and it was a ta'ava, it was a desire, it was a test of impulse control as we've been defining taiva, right? It was a test of her stolen waters taste sweet. If I can't have it, I want it even more. Okay. So we know this idea, when you see it, you want it. That's why when we go to restaurants or we go to anything, the colors of the food, the way the food's arranged. This has a lot to do, we're told, anybody who, who's a chef or knows anything about, you know, how to get people to, to eat your food is by making it look beautiful, right? By, by enticing the eyes, right? Your eyes are bigger than your stomach, we say, right? Because it's your eyes that draw you to want it. And so what do we do? By not exposing, exposing a person obviously to something, you'll minimize their desire for it. And to be exposed and then say, I don't want it or I shouldn't have it is so much harder, right? When you go shopping on an empty stomach or you've been dieting all week and then you go and oh my gosh, they have your favorite cheesecake there you know and it's right there in front of you 
obviously, once you see it, you want it. So, you know, that's the question. Again, should something be totally off limits? Don't expose yourself to it. Get rid of all the sugar in your, in your house. I remember I was on a no sugar something at one point in my life when my kids were little. And I, I don't know, some, a couple moved into our house to take care of our kids, whatever, we were going away for a while. And I remember she called me in desperation. She goes, where is the sugar in your house? I'm, I'm trying to, can't find any sugar, you know? I don't know. I guess I was going through some something. But, you know, is that what you do? Do you get rid of it entirely? Or do you bring, you know, can you moderate it? So whenever the rabbis made a geder, whenever they made a limit, it was something that they calculated the cost and the calculation, right? Is this going to make people want it more or is this going to be good for them, this limit? So whenever they made a, a, a geder, they felt it was better um, hold on one second. So a getter means that there are times when you can have it and times when you can't. So they felt that it was better to do that than to say totally off limits. Okay. So we gave the different examples, people who, um, okay. So for example, if you're on a diet, you can either say, I, I'm going to get rid of all the sugar in my house and that might work for you. But if that doesn't work for you, you might be the type of person that says, I can only get rid of sugar in my diet if I really understand why it's so bad for me, right? You have to like research it, get really into it, and then I won't be tempted. So there's two types of people again. Some people who, when there's rules made and limits, they're very good with it. They want to keep it. They will uphold those rules. And other people who will, whose taiva will be triggered whenever there's a limit, okay? So the idea of when the rabbis make some kind of limit is because they're basically saying it's better if you don't see it or have access to it. Because this is going to be better than having to control yourself. Okay? And it's not necessarily about the rabbis, but for each one of us, when we make a certain boundary or limit, you know, I'm not going to go to that restaurant because every time I do, I order the cheesecake and I end up being so upset with myself and so angry, you know, whatever, or I'm only going to go with five friends and we'll get one piece of cheesecake with five forks, you know, the Jewish way to eat dessert, right? <laughs> and, you know, only then can I go to that restaurant if there's enough people to share the cheesecake with, right? The point is, is we have to make our own uh, gedarim if we know that we have trouble with moderation in certain areas. Just a last example that uh, Dina Schoomaker gives is she said that there was a girl, she does a lot of coaching with girls who are dating. And she said there was a girl who was a dating a young man who she really, really liked. And it didn't work out. I guess he didn't feel the same way. And she couldn't get her, him off her mind for a very long time. And she knew it was a taiva, meaning she knew that she was just having trouble, you know, controlling her thoughts, controlling her mind. So she worked on herself 
and got to a point where she said she decided that he means nothing to me. She ended up dating and getting married. And months later, she saw him at a simcha. And as much as she had convinced herself that, you know, he means nothing to me anymore, I'm happily married, and everything else, but we know human condition is very, you know, we can think we're done with something and all of a sudden it comes up and rears its head again. So this story says that she saw him at a simcha and she realized the feelings she had for him were still there. And just by seeing him, they were aroused, even though she hadn't thought about it for months and months and she got married. And she said, only when I didn't see him was I able to create the space. So that's what each person has to decide for themselves. It doesn't mean that you should fool yourself and think, you know, I can handle this. I can go into this trap where I always fall, but I'll be okay this time. Person has to be smart, right? We talked about the elephant and the child who distracts the elephant. And the idea is that this, the elephant represents, uh, the child represents using your brain, using your seichel creating strategies so that you don't fall into the same place again. So moderation is very much a moderation is very much a Jewish idea. Um, you know, not to say absolutely no, if you can, but to be able to set up boundaries and strategies in places where you know that you're going to be tested in terms of your impulse control. Don't put yourself there if you have to do that. If it's a complete red line, then some in some areas, right, we know about people who are alcoholics and they can't take a drink again for the rest of their life because they know that part of addiction is that moderation in this area for them is something that's impossible. It's the same thing with technology, right? I recently told somebody, because I don't know, their kids were always fighting and everything. And I said, you know, maybe they're fighting to get your attention because you're always on the phone. And when they're fighting, you know, and you're sitting there on your uh, couch texting away or doing whatever you're doing. And I said, you know, why don't you try to put your phone away as soon as they come home from school? So for this person, she realized she has to do that. She has to go cold turkey. There's no middle ground when it comes to this kind of obsession and addiction. You know, whether it's technology or drinks or drugs, you know, giving in one time, you know, people sleep with their phones today. People always have to have them on, you know, there are people who make a rule. I'm not opening my phone until after I finish davening or finish breakfast. I'm going to say my moda ani and my morning blessings. And then I'm going to turn on my phone. Because I know if I turn on my phone before, first of all, I'm saying to God, my phone is more important than you. You'll have to wait. Okay. I've got important stuff to do. And I'll have to wait before I thank you for the fact that you woke me up today. Okay, let's get our priorities straight. <laughs> These fingers that are texting and this brain that is working is only because Hashem woke me up today, right? 
And so, you know what, Hashem? I'll say hi to you first, and then I'll turn on my phone. Thank you, Hashem, that my thumb works, and that I can afford a phone, and that I have people who are actually interested in me. And I will, you know, put my priorities first. And every breath I take comes from you. So, you know, let me say hello first, and then I'll turn on my phone. And as much as we might know that logically, intellectually, it's incredible. I'm talking about myself right now. Yeah, but I just have to find out if she answered me about the appointment today before. Okay, so hold on. Hold on. I'll be with you in a second. Right? No. When we exercise that kind of self-control, that's when we build ourselves. That's when we recognize I'm doing what my mind knows is right. And as we've said many times, what the mind knows until it filters down to, to the heart and action is as far away from heaven is to earth. You know, we can know something, we can believe something, it can be part of our value system, and then we can find ourselves doing out of taiva, out of impulse control, that very same thing that goes against everything that we said, you know, do as I say, don't do as I do, that kind of thing, right? And it can be the smallest thing of not turning on your phone before you say moda'ani. And thank you, Hashem, for giving me eyes and giving me ability to walk and the ability to have clothing to wear in the morning and to be able to function. But we'll put our phones ahead of that, even though it makes absolutely no sense. Okay. So, again, when something is off limits, we desire it more. And, you know, again, just a allusion to the Megillah that's coming up. I think I mentioned this in another class, but the Gemara asked the question, Haman min ha-Torah minayin. Where do we find an allusion to Haman in the Torah? And it says that Torah is, Haman, the name of Haman is alluded to again in the very first episode of human beings falling in the Garden of Eden, right? Right after they've eaten from the tree, Hashem comes along and says, Hamin ha'etz asher tzivisicha. Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the word Hamin is the same letters as the word Haman. And the rabbis say that this is an allusion to Haman. And why is he found in this Pasuk? Because that was Haman's problem. Haman had everything in the whole world. Everybody was bowing down to him. He was considered to be one of the richest and most powerful men that ever lived. And yet this one Jew wouldn't bow down to him. He couldn't have that one Jew bowing down to him. And for that, he forfeited everything. So again, the inability to control oneself, whether it's coming from arrogance, whether it's coming from insecurity, because a lot of times the flip side of arrogance is a complete lack of self-esteem. You know, I need everyone to bow down to me or I'm nothing. Even if, you know, what are you talking about? You have everything. Yeah, but if I can't get that person to do what I say, then, you know, I'm willing to give it all up. So that's where the, um, so where did Haman's attitude come from? Rav Shalom Shwadron asks, 
Haman gets fixated on one person who's not bowing down to him. Again, it doesn't matter that everything is subservient to me. I want that guy to bow down. And the same thing in the Garden of Eden, God says to Adam and Chava, you can have everything, just not that tree. So again, human nature is when we learn that something is off limits, we want it more. Nothing else becomes important except for getting that thing. And again, not everybody suffers from this. Some of us more and some of us less. It's interesting, but there was a, there's a rabbi, Ezreal Hiltzheimer, who says that the reason why a married woman needs an extra standard of tzniyas, right? She has to cover her hair. One of the reasons that he gives is because she's off limits. So because she's off limits, she, in a sense, becomes more desirable, right? If you say this woman's taken, another man's wife is more desirable than his own, right? We all have illusions that the other man's wife doesn't going to yell as much or nag as much or whatever. Those are the illusions and whatever illusions women have of other people's husbands, right? He's a bigger man. She gives her more jewelry. He's nicer. He, uh, he does everything perfectly. I'd never have to criticize him. Ha, ha, ha. Right? I'd never have to tell him what to do. Sure. Right? Not a Jewish woman then. Right? But the point is, is that because of that, because wherever there's an extra desire, there has to be an extra standard of off limits. And so he explains that that's one of the reasons why a Jewish woman has extra sneut of covering her hair. Okay. All right, I think we're going to end here today. And uh, we'll continue with our topic of Taiva. And on Sunday, I'll be doing the Shema, probably finishing up the Shema. And then we'll focus on Purim, God willing, for the next couple of classes.